سمیرا دختر بسیار سالی افغان میگه تنها چیزی که در این روزها در موردش زیاد فکر میکنه درس خواندن و موفقیت است میخواید در یک موقعیت قرار بگیره که بتانه آرزوها و رویاهای خود را برآورده کنه وقتی در مورد آینده صحبت میکنه صدایش غمگین و چشمایش پر از عشق شده میگه میترسه و احساس بسیار برداره سمیرا باید شاگرد سنف دوازده مکتب می بود. اما امروز در داخل خانه زندانیست. گاگا هم به کتاب های کهنه درسیش نگاه میکنه. مادر خود را در پاکاری خانه کمک میکنه و برای بهتر شدن اوضای کشورش دعا میکنه. سمیرا امروز از وضعیت وخیم و درمانده میلیون ها دختر افغان نمایندگی میکنه. سلام به قسمت سی و نومه پادکست جاده میوان خوش آمدین یک سال به نهایت طولانی و تلخ و دشوار از آمدن دوباره طالب ها و تصرف شهر زادگاه سمیرا توسط ای گروه افراتی و تروریستی میگذارم در یک سال گذشته خشونت در برابر زنان در کشور افزایش یافته طالب ها محدودیت های زیاد را برای زنان در کشور وضع کردن از حق و حقوق زنان و محافظت زنان دیگه خبر نیست قتل های خانگی خودکشی آزار و اذیت زنان شکنجه و بازداشت دختران و زنان متعرض فروش دختران خردسال از جمله موارد برجسته خشونت در برابر زنان است که در یک سال گذشته افزایش یافته طالب ها میخواین با یک مشت آهنین جامعه را مهندسی کنن ولی اینها این مسئله را فراموش میکنن که کاری که انگلیس، شوروی و امریکا نتونست انجام بدن اینها چطور میتونن انجام بدن اگر شوروی با قدرت نظامی و اقتصادی و تبلیغاتیش نتونست مردم افغانستان غلام خود بسازه چیزی که خود طالب ها به او زیاد تاکید میکنن طالب ها چطور فکر میکنن که مردم افغانستان میتونن برده خود بسازن؟ اگر امریکا و غرب در همین بیس سال گذشته نتانستن با زور و فشار نظامی و اقتصادی اراده مردم افغانستان تغییر بدن طالب ها چطور میتونن فکر کنن که بدون قدرت نظامی و اقتصادی و تبلیغاتی میتونن مردم افغانستان به بردگی مجبور کنن؟ وقتی یک جبار غلبایکر نمیتونه با مشت آهنین مردمان یک کشور برده خود بسازه یک جنبش بیادب و وحشی چطور میتونه باور کنه که میتونه به ای آسانی روحی مردمه بشکنانه بیاین تا کم در مورد دستاوردهای بزرگ طالب ها در همین یک سال گذشته صحبت کنیم کشتن غیر نظامیان کش دادنهای اجباری مردم از خانه و سرزمینشان ترور کارمندای حکومت قبلی غصب زمین و اموال شهروندان بازداشت و شکنجه کردن مردان پیر و جوان محروم کردن زنان از حق کار و تحصیل تحمیل کردن فشارهای اقتصادی بالای مردم ناتوان آزار دادن مردم در کوچه و خیابان و دها رفتار غیر انسانی دیگه با مردم افغانستان ای همه البته ممکن است برمدت مردم در ترس و سکوت نگه داره 
اما طالب ها ایره فراموش میکنن که جامعه یک سازمان بسیار پیچیده است و طالب ها هرگز نخواهند تانست چون این سازمان پردامنه و بسیار پیچیده را به تمامی کنترل کنند به نظر میرسه که طالب ها از گذشته خود و از تاریخ کشور چیزی یاد نگرفتن ولی به هر حال من به دلیل یک سالگی حکومت طالب ها همین چند روز قبل آقای اولور مارسن در برنامه داشتم آقای مارسن عکاس و روزنامه‌نگار است که در سطح جهانی کار میکنه و در حال حاضر در بیروت لبنان مستقر است بیشتر از یک سال میشه که در مورد وضعیت افغانستان مینویسه تمرکزش بیشتر بالای مسائل بشردوستانه و نارامی ها و نافرمانی های مدنی بوده و در بخش عکاسی خبری و عکاسی مستند ماستری داره و در دانشگاه روزنامنگاری لندن زبان عربی و خبرنویسی آموخته. آقای اولیور مارستن برای رسانه های مختلف جهان از جمله گاردین، سنده تایمز، فاینانشل تایمز، وایس ولد نیوز، و دیگه سازمان های خبری مهم و تأثیر گذار نوشته و عکاسی کرده آقای مارزن با که بسیار مصروف است و فعلا از کشور اوکراین گزارش میته لطف کرد و دعوت مرا پذیرفت و حاضر شد با ما در مورد سفر اخیرش به افغانستان صحبت کنند ما بایشان در مورد موضوعات مختلف صحبت کردم از وضعیت کنونی اوکراین گرفته تا به مقاله جالب آقای مارزن در مورد یک سالگی حکومت طالب ها که فقط چند روز قبل در روزنامه خبری ایوننگ استاندارد منتشر شد ما از آقای مارزن در مورد ترس زندگی و مرگ امید داشتن و حتی غذای افغانی مورد علاقه و پرسیدم پاسخهایی که از او تریافت کردم بسیار دلچسب و جالب بود به هر حال نمیخوایم بیشتر از این منتظر بمانیم از حمایت و پشتیبانیتان جهان سپاس فراموش نکنین که برنامه را لایک کنین و با دقت دوستا شیر کنین و حالا ای شما و ای هم آقای اولیور مارسن Uh, I'm here today with uh, Oliver Marsden. Oliver is a photojournalist, a journalist, and a director working globally. He is currently based in Beirut, Lebanon. Most recently, he has been covering the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan uh, following the American withdrawal a year ago now. His areas of interest are covering mainly humanitarian issues and civil unrest. He has an MA in photojournalism and documentary photography. He has studied Arabic and news writing at the London School of Journalism. Uh, he has written for major outlets such as The Guardian, The Sunday Times, Financial Times, uh, Vice World News, and other influential news organizations. Uh, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So did I, by the way, introduce you properly or did I miss anything you would like to add there? Just to be sure. <laughs> uh, no, that was, that was pretty good. Um, Uh, I have to admit, though, I, I haven't written for the Financial Times. It's, it's only been photographs. <laughs> okay, it's only been the photographs. All right, perfect. Um, so, uh, Oliver, I, I actually came across your work um, when I was uh, looking uh, for some of the, you know, on the ground kind of coverage of the one-year anniversary of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. And, um, you know, I saw some of the photos you had taken of the people and the, you know, the Taliban and the Taliban soldiers and, and the commanders 
you know, they were celebrating and cheering on the streets of Kabul. And, you know, your, your photos immediately caught my attention, to be honest. And first of all, I have to say you are an amazing photographer. So, um, and some of these photographs are, are absolutely stunning and beautiful. You know, whether one agrees on, you know, what's happening on the ground or not, um, you know, you do very much, uh, I would say, succeed in, in giving us, you know, the very real and the very, you know, tangible and, and authentic feeling of what's happening. Um, you know, you do this very beautifully and almost artistically, I would say. So um, just, just by using your camera. So first of all, before we discuss your visit to Afghanistan, um, Oliver, can you tell us uh, where you are reporting from currently? Uh, yes. I mean, first off, thank you very much for your kind words. That's, um, yeah, that's very nice of you to say about my work. I appreciate that. Um, I'm currently in Ukraine. I'm in Dnipro at the moment uh, in sort of south Ukraine, southeast Ukraine. Um, I'm working here at the moment for the Telegraph, uh, just as a photographer this on this trip, I'm working with the uh, correspondent as a team. Um, from, and mm-hmm. um, so yeah, we're covering events here on the ground. We've been in Mykolaiv and now we're in Dnipro and we um, are covering the, the military side of things as well as the civilian, um, uh, how the war is affecting the civilian population. But uh, the Telegraph, I think, are quite interested in the military side of things as well. Okay, cool. So maybe tell us a little bit what's happening there currently in Ukraine, Oliver. You know, how is the situation there? Is it is it really as, as bad as we think it is, you know, seeing what's happening there on the news, especially where you are right now? Yes, I mean, it, it's it's changed a lot. The situation, I mean, I was here on the February the 24th, or maybe I got here actually on the 25th. So as soon as the, as soon as Russia invaded, I, I came here and I was here for the first seven weeks of the war. Um, and covering it was all over the country because the war kind of was all over the country. It was in the north and the, and the east and around Kiev and like Bucha, Pin. Um, you know, I was covering strikes in Zhitomyr and Hemonetsky, which are cities in the middle of the country. The war, as you know, I think as we all know, the tactics of the Russians and the war changed. Um, there was a second phase to the war where. Russia wasn't having the gains it expected in the north um, and the east, and so it redirected its its attention to the south and the southeast and to the Donbass region. Um, mm. Many thought that it would that Russia would now try and take the whole of the south coast, including Odessa, to cut Ukraine off from the Black Sea, which is vitally important for Ukraine and for grain exports across the world. Um, so the situation's changed in in the larger sense. In, uh, that it's now just concentrated to the southeast. Um, I mean, what we're seeing on the news, yes, I mean, the, 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 there are less strikes, missile strikes, and there's less shelling um, in kind of random places, random towns, as far west as Lviv. But there is still a lot of shelling going on. There's still a lot of strikes, but it's now just more concentrated to the southeast Um you know, we were lying. I was lying in bed in Mykolaiv, uh, you know, for the last few nights, and I think last night and the night before, maybe even the night before that, you, you know, there there were missile strikes. They, strangely, they've just been happening at night, um, mostly, like around three in the morning, three thirty in the morning, there were missile strikes, um, and they were unfortunately there was uh, uh, these missile strikes hit civilian villages um, or civilian kind of infrastructure as well as military so mm. what we're seeing on the news is 
yeah, it is, it is, it is a reality of what's happening on the ground here. Um, from what I've experienced, um, there is still a lot of indiscriminate shelling and strikes, and it's not as accurate, I think, as the Russians are making it out to be, or as, the, as accurate as they would like it to be. Yeah. So, so from a reporting perspective, uh, Oliver, is is it uh, even possible to for you to, for example, go to the places where you can actually report from the other side, basically from the Russians' point of view, you know, what's happening there? Or is that even impossible for you to even travel to these places because of safety reasons? Uh, interestingly, yes. My, my colleague Campbell and I were talking about that. I mean, it would be really important and and interesting to report from the other side, from the Russian side, but it's just not possible. We can't get into the Russian-held territory. You know, we would love to get into Kherson and report from there, which is now completely occupied by Russia, but it's just, it's not feasible, it's not possible, especially not from a safety aspect. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, it's just, it's not, it's not, it's not possible. It's a shame, really, because then it does feel, I guess, arguably like the reporting is one-sided, um, and as much as we try not to be, but it, it, it will be like that. Exactly. And, and, and I think that that's probably, you know, one of the criticisms that we hear, especially here in the West, I, I would say, you know, why there is not uh, some reporting, you know, proper reporting being done. Almost everything coming from Russia, you know, it's it's impossible for people to even see these things, you know, hear the other side, basically the news stories don't get through. It's very difficult for people to form an opinion, which is um, kind of independently, you know, hearing all sides basically, and then kind of have a opinion about these things. So I was just wondering, you know, how we are uh, ever going to, you know, solve this problem of, of reporting. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the Russian propaganda machine is a, is a well-oiled machine. Um, mm. And I don't know, there is this, this sort of a detachment from reality in a lot of their reporting. People have asked me, you, you know, when reporting on a missile strike, like, how do you know it's not a Ukrainian missile? Or if it's fallen short? Or how do you know it's not Ukrainian shelling? And I guess the answer is, I mean, technically, you don't. You, but there's no way you, can, you can't be at the site where the missile is taken off and at the site where it's landed. It's just physically impossible. So I don't know how you do that. I mean, they, you know, I have seen Russian markings on the shrapnel from... Russian missiles, or what is purportedly a Russian missile. So, yeah, it's, it's a really difficult one. Um, I mean, I all I can say is that I, I believe in the work that I'm doing and that my colleagues are doing and that the truth is being told to the best of everyone's ability in that sense. Um, you know, I can't vouch for everyone and I can't vouch for the Russian media. And, and, you know, technically I can't vouch for the Ukraine media either, but Ukrainian media. But I know that the work we're doing is is honest and truthful. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a uh, it's a difficult topic, and uh, that's a tough one. I mean, yeah, it's just the modern the scourge of the modern kind of media landscape and the mistrust in mainstream media. You know. Yeah, and from what I've been hearing, you know, it it is not just um, the the shelling which is going on, on on both sides, basically, but it's also an informational warfare kind of situation. The way we get the information and what type of information uh, we receive and we process. I mean. Obviously, opinions will eventually be uh, be based on these news that we are consuming, right? Definitely, I would say something to to perhaps you know keep in mind and, and be mindful of um, that. It's just you know a lot of it is perhaps misinformation and disinformation and propaganda. Nevertheless, I think even the propaganda should be heard, so we can you know at least you know have our own opinions about these things. But but anyways, as you as you said, I mean these these things are really tricky and tough. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's it's about having a balanced kind of 
view or you know getting a balanced um, load of information and I you know you can, you can listen to I guess pro-Russian podcasts or read pro-Russian or, or, or communist uh, literature or, or, or reports that aren't necessarily Russian you know there are ways of doing that and I think that that can be quite interesting um, and it's just about I guess you know the, as you, as you were saying the mainstream media is getting a lot of heat especially post in the sort of post-Trump era but um you know, at least there's people are fact checking. At least there's accountability in the sense. Whereas, like a, some some of these kind of just YouTube channels are completely unregulated, and there's no fact to it. So, so sometimes people just get their information from these sort of crazy YouTube people, and that's quite dangerous. I think it's I think it's about reading a reading and watching a varied um, cycle of news. If, if you- that's right. That's right. So. All right, so maybe we can uh, turn to Afghanistan, uh, Oliver. So now, as I mentioned before, you're also a journalist. You know, you're writing for various newspapers across the world, I would say. You know, you have, you have been reporting from Afghanistan for the last month or so, uh, I believe. And you know, you've, you've written an article in the Evening Standard about the situation uh, in Afghanistan one year after the country fell to the Taliban, right? So maybe you can tell us a little a bit about you know what you saw there on the streets of kabul you know talking say to ordinary afghans you know but also perhaps um interviewing you know some of the taliban soldiers etc you know how, how was the atmosphere like you know what really caught your attention when you first arrived in kabul so so i went back for this anniversary because i was there a, a year ago or just under a year ago covering stuff and um what caught my attention funnily enough this time around um the first thing i noticed is there was less taliban on the streets of kabul and that i understand was because the people in the city of kabul had, had complained about the amount of taliban on the streets um you know they didn't it was off putting they didn't see that and i think the taliban took notice of that and they moved a lot of their fighters out of the city so they were there's less visibility in the city. That changed, however, on Monday, the 15th of August, the sort of one-year anniversary where, you know, the streets were just awash with Taliban fighters and they were there celebrating. Um, that was the first thing I noticed. The second thing I noticed, um, there weren't very many women on the street, uh, especially not in the center. Um, that being said, there were still some, and there were some that whose, they weren't covering their faces, some who were covering their faces. Um, and the other thing I noticed is that there was a big internally displaced um, kind of refugee camp in the central park in Kabul. Uh, that had gone. Now, I don't know if the Taliban had moved that on or if people had just decided to go home when they realized that there was a sort of quote-unquote kind of relative safety in the country. Maybe they decided to go back north or back home. Um, but uh, that, that's what I noticed um, still noticed a lot there was a lot of poverty a lot of um hungry people a lot a lot of people sort of begging on the street because the financial situation is so dire i mean it, as as the un have said it's on the edge of a what is a humanitarian catastrophe which kind of is um so those are kind of my first impressions and there is a, a relative safety to the on the streets as well i mean if we if we put isis k um, aside, uh, the just the situation is being able to walk around the street, walk around at night. It is safer now because because the Taliban have 
deterred any you know any kind of thievery, thieving or any anything like that with their brutal kind of punishments. So it's not necessarily a good thing, but um, it is it is safer. I guess you know what, what is what is your feeling from you know what you saw regarding the legitimacy and, and acceptance of of the Taliban among the Afghans, especially I would say among the youth, and probably I'm not sure if you spoke to women there and the girls. You know, do, do you think? The Taliban are here to stay, or, or do you think you know they have an, some sort of an expiry date, like like the first time around? What is your overall assessment of that? Unfortunately, from what I see, they're here to stay for the time being. I, I don't see a way out of it. I don't see any internal resistance big enough to make a difference. You know, there is some. There's the Northern Alliance, but I, I don't know if that's really having a huge effect. So I think they are here to stay. Um, I spoke to young men and I spoke to a lot of people who were happy with the security in Kabul and the relative safety in the country but the overriding um, problem for them was the economy and I just wanted to differentiate between speaking to men on the street and speaking to women is a very different conversation and I'll come on to the women in a second who I spoke to and interviewed but for the men and young men that I spoke to it was that they were happy with the safety. They weren't necessarily happy with the Taliban. They didn't like Taliban rule. I mean, the colleagues, my Afghan colleagues who I worked with, you know, they were welcoming to the Americans when they first came. They were happy about it. And then that obviously that that changed over time and they became more jaded and more upset with them when, when nothing when it was sort of they weren't doing the right thing. But so they're happy with the sort of security. They don't like the situation they're in. Um, but the main problem, I think, for a lot of the men is the economic situation. And um, one man who I spoke to in Dashti Bachi in the west of Kabul, you know, he was talking about how he had a he had three or four electronic stores, and now he's his business has been reduced to him selling like um, remote control receivers for televisions on a stool in the street. And he was like, you know, what is good is the security. If I, if I can't eat, if I can't feed my family, if there's no work, you know, I can't eat security. That's not going to feed anyone. So that was the really, really the main issue facing. I mean, there's you know huge issues with malnutrition. We went into hospitals and went onto the malnutrition ward in the children's hospital, the Indira um, Gandhi Hospital. So that was sort of the main issue that people were facing, just the really strong economic problems. When I and now on the other side, when you speak to women or the young women that I interviewed, they hate, they hated it. I mean, life for them is is still horrible. Um, I mean, even that's an understatement. Um, they were afraid, young girls were afraid to leave the house. They wouldn't leave the house. They weren't in education anymore. They were just sitting at home doing nothing, reading old books or helping the family clean or cook. They, they felt like prisoners in their own country and in their own homes. And it was really, really sad. And I even managed to speak to one woman, um, a teacher, um, and she is not married, she lives with her mother, has no male um, family members. And, you know, her life, she just she says she just gets up, goes to work, and goes straight back home. There's nothing in between. And she hates it. She, she got incredibly depressed. She got put on um, antidepressants, um, a medication, because of the situation. And that was a common theme with a lot of the women I spoke to. This is the mental health and the depression. And there's been a lot of reports of you know women trying to take their own lives and suicide um, attempts there's 
I'm actually going to read from your article where you quote a girl called Samira, uh, or Samira, a 20-year-old student who should be in year 12, you say, but is now stuck indoors and she's cleaning the house instead and, and praying for things to get better. So, And Samira says, you know, all I think of is studying and being successful uh, to be in a position where I think, yes, this is what I want with my life. So tell us a little bit about Samira. You know, who, who is she and what happened to her and, and why is it basically impossible for her to continue her education and, and realize her dreams? Samira was a girl I met um, in Kabul. I, I sort of secretly went to her family's home and was allowed to interview her and her cousin. Um, and uh, yet, the, unfortunately, she is... I guess what age, age would she be? 16, 17, I think. Um, well, no, she's, sorry, 21. Um, uh, but she, she's in the sort of, would be in the year group of sort of 16, 17, about to finish, you know, high school, go to university. And um, because the Taliban have, have banned education for girls, um, she, you know, just like that, her schooling stopped. And she is, you know, of a number of girls who are of a certain age where they are living in limbo, where it's high school age girls basically where they, they can't study. And if you can't study, you can't go to university. So if you're already at university or finished university, you're okay. Or if you're, if you're younger than high school, you know, you can still go to school, but that middle ground has been completely switched off for a lot of girls. I mean, there are secret schools that people go to. There are like courses that you can go to, which kind of get around it, but it's not, you know, it's not the formal academic education that will help them get into university. So they just feel completely trapped and, and Samira herself, you know, she, she had quite a glazed kind of look in her eyes, especially when she was looking out the window and she said she didn't have the money to afford mo online classes. She couldn't afford the data for like online learning. She just had nothing to do. She, you know, I would, I'd ask her like, what, so what do you do? And she kind of would just sit there and say, Oh, nothing. Like, cause she did, she'd really lost. It's been a year and she's just lost any kind of impetus to, work around it I think there's just this complete sadness and this feeling of being completely let down um, by the previous government and the kind of coalition forces that there's just this kind of despair and, and apathy almost where she's just like, you know I just do nothing I mean she does read old books and she helps clean but that's it's not really a life and, they, and she doesn't go out much so this type of despair and, and hopelessness, um, Oliver, I, I'm not sure, maybe I should ask you, was this like a team you could actually sense, you, you know, something that every girl or, you know, the, the youth basically there, you know, was kind of feeling all the time? And, and by the way, were they thinking about actually leaving the country? Did they tell you this? I mean, I think almost all of the girls I spoke to wanted to leave the country um, any way out. A lot of them either couldn't because they didn't have a passport, they couldn't afford a passport. Uh, right now, getting a passport is taking a long time. It's difficult. And even if you can get one, you know, unfortunately right now, having an, Afghan, an Afghanistan passport, it doesn't open that many doors, you know. Um, I had spoke to a girl who I met a year ago. She managed to leave with her family and go to Iran, um, two young girls who wanted to become a doctor and a lawyer, and two sisters. And... They were in Iran now. They are there now. And um, I spoke to them over the phone, and they were saying the situation's almost just as bad because they illegally crossed into Iran, so they have no paperwork, no documents, and so they're not allowed to go to school. 
and now they're hardly leaving the house um, and they're not they're not getting the schooling that they want because they don't have the right uh, documentation so it's it's sort of out of the frying pan into the fire for them you know from one situation one bad situation to to another I mean I think the only people who who are who are managing to get education and get a better life are the ones who managed to leave you know through the legal routes or, or left very early on having helped maybe the coalition forces or worked with them I, in London in England I mean I went to Crawley sort of a area in Sussex uh, so south of of London where about 600 Afghan families were being um, housed in a, in a hotel in Crawley and they had got official visas but the visas were taking a long time to come through they hadn't been given houses and so the children some of the children were going to the local school or the local college they were getting an education but the problem was the British government's really dragging its feet and it's it's shameful really so they haven't got permanent homes they're living out of a hotel all on top of each other it's the the children are getting behavioral problems because there's nowhere for them to play nothing for them to do because they're stuck in this hotel um and some of these families have been moved from exeter for example or exmouth which is in devon in the sort of south of england up to yorkshire to then london They've been moved three, four, five times over the course of a year, so the children haven't been able to get into a decent flow of education because they kept being moved schools and moved around the country. So it's a really, really horrible situation because if you're in Afghanistan as a as a young woman, you're not, you can't get education. If you leave illegally to Iran, for example, you can't get education. And if you come to England legally, you can get education, but it's not. It's uh, there's no kind of consistency. Um, so yeah, it's it's a, it's a really tough situation. Um, but I, everyone I spoke to in Afghanistan does want to leave. Yeah, because I I wonder, you know, even if the situation outside of Afghanistan is is not is not any any better, I'm not sure how people would would think about this. You know, living inside of the country under this horrible situation and and being ruled by the Taliban, you know, and not being able to um, to go to school and to work, things like this, and participate basically, or you know, get outside and go somewhere else, and maybe at least try to pursue your dreams somewhere else. And I have to say, I sorry to interrupt you, but I have to say also that. I mean, we can't. We, I don't think thinking of the Taliban as a monolithic kind of structure is helpful because there are elements within the Taliban who are trying to get high school age girls into school. Um, there are members of the Taliban who want girls to be educated. I mean, we we know that the Taliban themselves are sending their daughters for for education in Doha, I believe, in Qatar. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily an ideological. Um, uh, standpoint, you know, it's I, I, I'm not sure what it is, but it may be a bargain. As I mentioned in that article, maybe, maybe it's a bargaining chip to be used against the West, and it's just they're not getting the concessions they want, and so they're really kicking the can down the road with getting letting girls go to school because they know that you know America and, and UK that's a very important thing for them. Um, so, but but there are members, weirdly enough, the Hakani network. I think are quite. Um, I've been quite. I don't know what the word is, I guess making steps in the right direction, quite positive about getting young girls into school again. But still, everyone's slow moving. It should be done by now. 
you know, it has been a year now and, uh, you know, the schools are still not open for everyone at least. You know, the girls are, are stuck so at homes and, and I'm not sure, you know, whatever is happening within the group. And uh, if even if the Taliban is not a monolithic group and they're moderate and, you know, extremists uh, within the group, I mean, whatever is happening, it's not showing itself in a positive way in the society, at least from when I read your article, for example, and, and talking to you right now. So... If you get one year and, and you have a chance to at least improve some of the things that you have promised and that, that's still not happening, maybe maybe there's something else going on. And uh, so let's uh, let's find out. And you're right. So just to say, like going back to your original question, you know, what what did I notice? What were the differences I noticed? I mean, I, to be honest, not a lot. I mean, the sad thing was that nothing had really changed in the year. And as you were saying, like it's it's taking too long, and there's a lot of feet being dragged over this, um, and it doesn't make sense. Um, and yeah, any positive changes are incremental, if there are any, as you said. Yeah, I actually, I, I read something which was really disturbing. I, I think you mentioned it also in your own article, and this is regarding, you know, forced marriages and things like this. And, I, and I'm sure you know, you know, Afghanistan has gone through a lot. I mean, probably never before was the country, you know, affected by kind of multiple disasters, you know, um, all at the same time. You know, we now have this extremist group taking over an entire country and, you know, they're implementing or forcing their, I would say their Stone Age laws and customs, to be honest. And, you know, the entire female population of the country is basically erased from public life, right? And the country has experienced the worst drought in decades. And I think you you also mentioned this in your own article. People went through the COVID pandemic. There's an economic collapse. There are food shortages, you know, there's starvation. I even read somewhere, you know, that people are selling their body parts, you know, kidneys, things like this. Basically, it seems like the country is going through a huge humanitarian catastrophe. And I think it's like a worst nightmare of any nation. And you report that parents are forced to marry off their children, you know, making child marriage like a some sort of a coping mechanism uh, for the economic decline, basically. You know, can you perhaps tell us if you actually saw things like child labor and children being married off, infants being sold to strangers and things like this? Um, I, you know, I, I witnessed children in the street working. Um, I witnessed children in the street begging. Um, I, I mean, I wasn't, witness at a marriage you know specifically um but i know that yes girls um or young children are being married off or taken out of school to work or being married off um you know for financial reasons there's one less mouth to feed it's someone else's responsibility at that point you know there might be a some sort of arrangement or a dowry kind of involved um yeah, i mean yeah I, 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 as far as you know witnessing yeah, I saw a lot of children either working or begging. I didn't see any children, you know, in the act of being married off. I didn't see any children being married off the Taliban, for example. Um, but it is definitely happening. Not necessarily just the Taliban. I mean, it's, it's just a child marriage is happening. I mean, UNICEF have reported on this. Have the Taliban any laws in place for that, for example, to, to ban this kind of behavior? Not as far as I'm aware of, no. I don't think they're encouraging it or anything like that, but I don't think there are any laws in place to stop it. And that's the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, as you said, I mean, there are, it's, it's just, this, it is a humanitarian catastrophe, um, 100%. And 
especially with the drought and you know, the economic situation, people are desperate. I mean, it's so desperate, as you said, that they're selling off, you know, organs, um, body parts. They're selling off their children. I mean, I can't imagine a, a greater act of desperation, really, than that. And also, just to ask you about something else that you mentioned there as well, which was, you know, quite disturbing, uh, to be honest, you know, that the Taliban have been kind of knocking on doors, you know, going after people who worked for the previous regime, you know, especially if you were in the army. How much of this is actually true? You know, are are people actually being prosecuted or even executed? And, and did you, by the way, feel any any kind of ethnic tensions and even hatred among the people? And, you know, I'm, I'm asking this question, Oliver, because Taliban are majority Pashtuns, which is an ethnic group within the country. And, you know, ethnic rivalries are unfortunately on the rise as we speak. However, I'm not sure if this is just a, like a Twitter reality or is this, you know, a reality which has become worse, say, since the Taliban took over the country a year ago. I didn't see or notice any sort of ethnic tensions myself, but I do, you know, I do know that in um, that the Hazara, the predominantly Shia Hazara communities in Afghanistan, and those around Bamiyan or, or even in in Dashti Bachi in, in West Kabul, you know, they have been historically they've been targeted by the Taliban, um, and and more recently when they came to power, there were reports of land being seized from the Hazara community. Um, businesses being taken away um, and then the I met a guy who was part of the Shia Hazara community and he did work for the army and they came yeah the Taliban were going around knocking on doors I mean, he told me that the reason they left they fled, fled Afghanistan and went to Iran is because the Taliban came knocking on the door and were intimidating people and they didn't he said you know quote, quote unquote we didn't want to live in fear anymore so they had to leave. So there was definitely a campaign of um, intimidation. Um, you know, any killings, extrajudicial killings, I, I don't... There were reports, but I, I, can't, I can't, you know, verify that. I, I didn't see anything. Um, but there were reports of it. Interestingly, what, when I spoke to one member of the Hazara community, the, you know, we talked about ISIS-K and ISIS-K attacking mosques, attacking Hazara mosques, ISIS-K, Sunday, and... Um, and so, you know, he was he was saying that in Afghanistan there didn't used to be this this um, you know all the different ethnicities were living together and were, were living together quite comfortably. And he said that the ISIS K are trying to drive a wedge now between the the communities. They're trying, using this period of instability to drive a wedge and create kind of ethnic tensions. Um, whether or not it's working, I didn't see it. Um, I think people are living in fear of the Taliban, but I don't know if people are living in fear of Pashtuns, for example. I think those are two very different things. Um, so I, th I think there are factors which are creating a hostile environment for certain groups. You know, I think ISIS-K, I think the Taliban, members, factions of the Taliban in general. But I wouldn't, I, I didn't see a kind of more generalized um, I didn't feel a more generalized tension in the air between groups. I can definitely tell you that from my own reading of this, people are really, really becoming more extreme in their views when it comes to their ethnic backgrounds. That's really something uh, which, 
somehow it, it didn't really surprise me because, I mean, this has happened before in a country like Afghanistan, you know. It is a horrible outcome eventually if we look at what happened historically to the country. If these ethnic tensions really get exploited, either within the country or from the outside of the country, you know, people actually playing the ethnic cars and kind of, you know, pushing their own pawns, you know, and things like this. Uh, as you know, this is very common in the history of Afghanistan. This is always something I'm interested in and to see, you know, how much of this tension is an actual fact on the ground, which might eventually, you know, end up in some sort of a civil war. This is something which has happened several times before, and this wouldn't be the first time ever. So this is something that I'm, I'm very much worried about. And that's the reason I asked this question. Um, but, but you're saying it's not that clear at the moment. It's, it's not clear now, but I think you know, a year, um, I think it's early days still. Um, and I think these kind of tensions are always exacerbated by um, economic uh, crises. And so, you know, this is, it, it happened in, um, in other countries, in like Lebanon, where I, I live, you know, this economic crisis is, is causing uh, people to become more secular. Because I think people find a, there's a safety in numbers and a safety within your own community in, in a time when it's very unstable, um, when there's a lot of instability. And so... I think, I think undoubtedly, people up in Afghanistan are maybe being drawn into their own community. The communities are becoming more insular because it is a safe space. Um, they look after one another financially. You know, they they trust one another. That that is go, always going to be a fact. It's always going to be what people do when a situation is as dire as it is in somewhere like Afghanistan. And people might even get a bit more tribal, right? Because, you know, you're so dependent on your own tribe and clans and things like this, right? And I think, you know, even with uh, stuff like humanitarian aid, um, you know, people might think, well, hang on, that's being distributed to that group and not my group. Why is that happening? And it's, it's never usually, that is never usually the case. It's never done on purpose, but it can look like that from afar. And when people are already angry, um, and I think people, as you say, as you mentioned before, you know, it's a perfect time to exploit these tensions or to, 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 to exploit any instability or any mistrust. You know, now, now is the time to do it. And, and I think, you know, ISIS-K and other members, certain maybe more um, extreme members of the Taliban, you know, are using this time for that, for that reason. But I think, unfortunately, undoubtedly, it is, it is going to be a byproduct of this economic um, crisis. You mentioned the Northern Alliance before, Oliver. So did you actually had a chance to uh, or manage to travel to the north of the country where there is resistance and actual fighting going on against the Taliban by the National Resistance Front? It was a plan. Um, it, I, would, I would love to get up there. I'd love to cover what is happening there. Unfortunately, as I said, I was, my trip was cut short and I was sent to Ukraine. But um, uh so I can't tell you too much about that. I mean, I the only thing, you know, I when I spoke to people on the ground, there was differing views about how effective that resistance was. The Taliban were quite keen to shrug it off. And, you know, it wasn't really a thing. It's not really a problem. Um, um, people who I spoke to in Kabul were not that aware of it. Or, you know, they just didn't see it as that effective. But then again, I, you know, I don't know. I imagine it's very different maybe if you're up in like the Panjir Valley or you're up in the north. Um, I think was there any talk about this whole resistance thing places like Kabul were, were people even aware of this yeah I mean people everyone was aware of it uh, for sure um, 
I just I think the Taliban have kept a lid on it um, effectively. So I don't know if people were at, that aware of it. I don't know if they were aware how you know if how effective this resistance was. I mean, we I don't know because the Taliban were kind of kind of keen to shrug it off. But I do know that they can't have been that nonchalant about it because they were sending more and more fighters up there and they were sending some kind of from what I understand, I can't remember any names but they'd had sent a couple of quite high ranking Taliban uh, and experienced Taliban members, you know, up up to the north so I think, you know, they can't it's not, I think they must be a tiny bit worried about it, it is a resistance and, and they haven't been able to completely squash it and it's been a year, you know so, um, but I don't unfortunately I, did, I didn't get to go up there so I, I couldn't tell you much about it all right. All right. So just a couple of general questions about your life and, and personal experiences as a reporter, Oliver. How and why did you become a reporter, if I may ask this question? You know, what really motivated you to kind of risk your life, report from places like Afghanistan? You know, what, what actually motivates you to keep on, you know, covering this, this very difficult topics? Well, I first got into uh, journalism. I guess it was through photography. I was doing photography before... Um, uh, and I was sort of often spending my earnings on going to interesting countries on my own and, and doing more kind of photojournalism quite kind of work, shooting on film a lot, whereas before I was sort of doing some fashion or headshots or whatever, because um, I was working in, in actually the film and TV world before, and I changed careers. And what it was is that um, I just... Um, it was just so... F- I wasn't necessarily that fulfilled in my previous job but and I was so fulfilled doing this I was so excited and I really believed in what I was doing and for me what really drives me is and I think the same for you know most journalists and, and people is, is, is human beings human people they really their stories who they are what makes them tick what they think about you know that really drives me and so I wanted to get under the skin of that more I wanted to understand people and I wanted to tell Stories and and I think the saying you know to give a voice to the voiceless is is, is stupid and is trite. Everyone's got a voice. Um, maybe not the ability to use it or the platform, but um, so it was never it was never as arrogant as that to think that you know I was giving people voice. It was more that I wanted to document experiences in a truthful manner and and to find truth in that, and that was what really drove me and 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 what still drives me. You know, the second part of your question is is um, seeing how people are reacting to events, seeing if we can learn from them, finding the truth within this, the stories, and, and just making sure that these stories are told and got out there. I think it's just incredibly important. You know, I still believe in the power of journalism and of, and of truth. I mean, unfortunately, we're seeing, seeing, you know, especially here in Ukraine, that it doesn't sometimes, you know, this is it is a bit of history repeating itself, and we don't seem to learn, but I think... You, you have to keep getting these stories out. You have to keep telling these stories and telling these people's experiences in the hope that it does really make a difference and make a change. What have you really learned about yourself through doing this job? And, and I mean that emotionally, you know, intellectually, and even politically. Has your political views changed or shouldn't that matter at all because, you know, you're reporting and trying to be unbiased and, and not partial? I guess I've learned that I'm a lot... Uh, I'm a lot more resourceful um, and brave is the wrong word. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'm better at putting myself aside. I found more confidence in what I'm doing. I found more confidence in life because of what I do. 
Um, I'm better at sort of be, being brave is not the right way of putting it. I'm better at, I'm better at putting myself in the in the situation and not thinking about myself. That and that enables me to be in maybe a dangerous situation or it gives me a sense of sort of um, bravery or you know lack of fear because I believe in what I'm doing. Um, so I've, I've learned that about myself. You know that there was more. Uh, you know. There's less fear, and there was more, and that there's more confidence to be found within me. And I really, you know, love what I do, and I'm resourceful and good at doing it. As far as my political beliefs, oh, I don't know. It's, you know, that's a tough one because I, you know, I believe in being um, balanced and fair, and I and I don't, I never really go with an agenda. Uh, I think I have become a lot more open and tolerant over the time about doing this and a lot more open in the sense of what the reality of what the world is kind of like um, which hasn't always been an easy lesson or an easy thing to learn um, but yeah I've, I've found my politics probably gone a little bit more left uh, not that they were right before at all but um, <laughs> but like just seeing what I'm seeing on a sort of daily basis and, and seeing how the world works it's gone a little bit more left um, but yeah but I still believe in being very um fair and, and balanced i don't think my politics ever comes into my work but i think my work may have changed my politics a tiny bit maybe you mentioned confidence and and things like life and that so let me ask you a question about that having been to places like ukraine and afghanistan war zones basically you know how has your work kind of changed your perspective you know on life and that as a, as a human being, not just as a reporter. My my parents passed away when I was younger. My father died when I was eighteen. Well, I say younger. I mean, my yeah, my father died when I was eighteen. My mum died about four years ago, so I wasn't I wasn't that much younger. Um, and so I'd I'd had experiences with death before, and I'd seen it up close. Um, and that I guess gave me sl- maybe slightly desensitised me to it in a way but as much as one can be but you, you can't be you know it's still it's still horrible um however much you've seen you know and it still affects you greatly um you know you realize there are some really really horrible people out there in the world um truly and i know that this is a cliche to say but you also see the like the absolute humanity and the goodness in people in these situations um so I, I guess my perspective has, has changed a bit. I mean, death is, is still, and the destruction is still incredibly shocking, and I don't think you can be completely kind of inured to it. It's 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 still shocking, and it, and it's we're all human beings at the end of the day. Um, and for me, you know, when I was here at the beginning of the war, I sort of you would get you concentrate on your work, kind of bury yourself in your work or behind the lens, in a way to kind of deal with it. And and often, you know, we were. I was moving so much and so quickly um, around the country and trying to file and get, you know, do as many stories and cover as much as I could that you kind of then, you detach, you do, your brain detaches from the reality in a way and you kind of, you're thinking about the work as a way of not thinking about the kind of death and the destruction, even though it is present and it it just still affects you. Uh, You know, one of my friends, uh, who's a journalist, a cameraman, unfortunately he passed away here, Uh, he was killed in some shelling in a pin earlier in the war his colleague who was another friend of mine you know lost a leg and that affected me hugely you know i, I cried about that in the hotel room in odessa uh, you, you you can't not be affected by that um uh but uh, but but you carried on with the work and interesting for me what i find is that 
um, I do the job, I'm fine, I'm fine, I get home, I'm fine, it's nice to see my friends again, or I like go to a restaurant. And then, you know, after I came back from my last trip in Ukraine, it actually was like, there was like a weird delay. There was like a kind of two or three week delay and where suddenly I was out one night and I kind of went to bed and then I had like a, you know, it started to affect me when I was in bed or I was thinking about things. I had like almost like a mini kind of a panic attack and then for a little while after that, you know, I felt anxious or you feel the things that you feel, you know, after this or, you know, what would be described as uh, PTSD, you know, the anxiety or depression, anger. And it's sort of, in, it comes in, it's quite insidious and it comes in uh, subtly. And, but I, you know, I felt it before, I knew what it was, and there are ways that I deal with it, you know, I surround myself with my friends, I talk to people, I, I stop drinking alcohol for a while, I start running more, um, I try and do the things, you know, all the things that are good for you that you should do, which is actually kind of really hard to do when you're in that state, because you just want to like, sometimes drink or party or like blow off some steam, uh, which is probably a good thing as well but you know I try and just meditate and run and not drink too much booze um, and and you know I think it's something that we all go through and something that you just have to learn to you, it doesn't not happen you can't stop it happening but what you can do is give yourself the tools to just let it affect you less when it does happen I believe in, I believe in the job and I believe in what I do and I love I love what I do so I'm back here doing it again well, that's, that's great to hear. So let me ask you a question about photography, Oliver. So you're a photographer and, and I believe you take those photos because you believe they represent something. I have a bit of a philosophical question here for you, perhaps. Do you think, is an image or a photograph the reflection of reality? You know, is it some sort of a window to the world? Or does a photograph rather kind of mask, you know, a reality? How do you think about photography kind of presenting or representing reality? Wow, yeah, that's a good question. How long have you got? Yeah, the ethics of it all. I mean, there's so much there. Um, for me, I can only talk about my work, really. And for me, photograph and photography is trying to, you know, is a moment of truth and is a, a pure moment of capturing truth. Um, you know, I don't, do big edits to my work. I don't crop that much. I try and do, because I come from an analog film background, I actually try and do as much of it in camera as I can when it comes to light and shutter speed and all these things. Um, and I think within photojournalism, you know, you, you shouldn't edit. There are certain rules. I mean, if you work for Reuters or Getty, you know, they have actual rules about not editing. Um, so for me, you know, I think the power of a, an image is, is, is so important and, it, and it's so powerful and, and and if you can tell truth through imagery, it's imagery. It's an incredibly um, didactic and 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 powerful tool. Were any of your photos, Oliver, taken away from you there by the Taliban, or censored somehow, or you were just you know free to take pictures and go to places where you wanted to go? And no, nothing was uh, deleted. You could take pictures relatively freely if you had the right permissions from the Taliban. The new rule that came in was that if, if I wanted to shoot, make imagery in a, um, in a hospital, I had to go to the Ministry of Health first. If I wanted to make imagery in a school, I had to go to the Ministry of Education first. All, you know, Taliban run. And they would give you a letter to then go and work in, in places. But um, no, no, once I got those letters and I, was, and I had those permissions, no one stopped me uh, photographing. No one asked me to leave anything. But I do know that... 
when I was covering the, the small women's protest in Kabul, there were some journalists that were picked up by the Taliban and they were detained. Um, and when they were detained, some of them had their footage. They were given their cameras back, but they were made to delete some of their imagery and some of the footage. I would like to actually ask you a number of rapid fire questions. So maybe if possible, you can try to answer these questions, you know, as quick as you can. Uh, would I be okay with you? Yeah, yeah, of course. It's not my best skill. I know that I tend to ramble on. So sorry. I'll try. Number one, what was the best and worst places you have spent a night in Afghanistan? Uh, best place was my friend's apartment in Kabul. Uh, worst place was in the Serena Hotel when I got trapped there and we didn't know how we were going to get out of Afghanistan and we were waiting for the Qataris to put us on a flight that seemed to never come. And it was expensive. Were you scared of the Taliban? If yes, what was your scariest moment while being so close to the Taliban? Uh, the quick answer was no. I wasn't scared of them. Do you have any favorite photo you have taken from your time covering the one-year anniversary of Taliban? Loads of the Taliban men standing on the steps and there's a guy at the front holding his AK-47 in the air kind of looking back or to the side at the rest of the Taliban who've all got their arms in the air celebrating. Um, that, uh, I think that was, that was quite a strong image. Um, it's quite intense. You can find that on my, my Instagram page, at Oliver G. Marsden. Uh, a lot of my imagery goes up on there and it'll be with my image licensing agency and eventually it'll be on my website when I start just being, stop being lazy and start sorting that out. <laughs> So uh, since you've been always, uh, you know, reporting from really tough places, you know, almost hellish places, I would say, there's always a risk of being kidnapped. Have you ever been kidnapped? It's scary, but no. no. Uh, while reporting from Afghanistan, has there been a moment where you thought, you know, you should put down your camera while you were, you know, taking photos and filming Taliban fighters on the streets and on the back of these pickup trucks, perhaps because, you know, of your own safety or the safety of others? The only time that did happen, I think, was at the border crossing a year ago, and one Taliban fighter got very angry with me. But yeah, I sort of just, you know, put my hands in the air, put the cap, pointed, you know, the lens downwards to the ground, put my hand in the air, and just walked away. I don't tend to engage when, like, someone like that is shouting at me. I just tend to, like, put my hands in the air and walk away. Um, and then if they chase me and grab me, then they chase me and grab me. Not sure what to think of that strategy, but okay, if it works. Uh, <laughs> uh. <laughs> All right. So um, did the fact that you're a male and speak Arabic somehow impacted your work and your stay in Afghanistan? Not the fact that I spoke um, Arabic, no, but the fact that I was a male, yes, hugely. I mean, it's as a, you know, I have to be completely honest, as a white male, you know, foreign journalist in Afghanistan, it, I'm afforded opportunities and um, safety and ability to work the Local journalists are not at all, and female journalists are not. Um, it's a very, you know, I'm very aware of that. Um, so just being a man, yeah, helped help me. Okay, so being a man. All right, so do you think, would they have treated me similarly if I was doing the same stuff, taking the same pictures and photos and reporting from Kabul? Would would they still, uh, how do you think they would have treated me? Um, I don't know. I don't know. I mean... I I think journalists, you know, got hit um, when I was there last time. I got hit, but and but and and European journalists got detained, um, and local journalists got detained and, and let go. But you know, a year ago we saw local journalists being beaten horrifically. So I think, yeah, the way that uh, I look 
in Afghanistan and how I look to the Taliban definitely affords me um, privileges that you know other journalists and other local journalists wouldn't necessarily get. Let me ask you a question about the cuisine, actually. So what, what would you normally eat while reporting from Kabul? Oh, mantu. Mantu. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, oh, that's, that's funny, yeah. Uh, well, that's, that's a favorite of lots of Afghans, to, to be honest. So, really? Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, little, mm. little parcels of heaven. That's what I call them. Um, but, I uh, agree. <laughs> um, I, yeah, that and then, um, you know, the, the staples are sort of bread, um, rice, uh, and or bread, no, not even rice, actually, bread and chicken. Like that, that, I had this amazing curry, chicken kind of curry in a tomato sauce with very lots of oil, and then you in the big metal kind of bowl, mm. and you dip the bread in and eat it. Oh, it's so good! Yeah, so there's a lot of that, a lot of mantu, and a lot of that. Well, I'm kind of deprived from, from eating that since I've uh, turned into vegetarian, unfortunately. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> oh, really. How long uh, have you been almost a year now. Yeah. Oh, not that long. How's it? How's it going? I, I do miss things like mantu sometimes, you know, especially when it's mentioned. Restaurants are now working on on the vegetarian version of that, so I mean, at least there are options, right? Exactly. So. Can I ask you a quick question? Do you, how do you feel as a vegetarian now? After a year, do you feel a marked difference in your health or your uh, the, your mind, your clarity, anything like that? To be honest, there are different aspects to becoming and actually being a vegetarian, right? So you, you have the ethical and the moral aspect of this, right? So from that perspective, I mean, there is some sort of a mindful way as a vegetarian not actually causing any harm. And then you have the awareness when it comes to environmental aspect of this, right? So that's that's the second one. And then you have obviously your health perspective. From a health perspective, I can tell you definitely, you know, I have been working out more. You know, I've been quite mindful about my own diet, you know, what I eat and what I put in my mouth, where I actually do my groceries. That has definitely changed, I would say, Be just being a bit more aware of the whole thing overall, right? From the animal's sufferings perspective to the environment to the health aspect of things. So so all of that together, I would say I have been feeling great, yeah, for the last year. Uh, was Was it for you, was it, if you don't mind me asking, was it more of an ethical decision or a taste decision? I mean, taste-wise, to be honest, yeah, that, that was a, a difficult decision to be to be made. I was eating meat almost on a daily basis, to be honest, right? So I was also working out and chicken was really my thing. And, uh, you know, especially growing up as an, as an Afghan within, you know, the community, you have this delicious dishes, as you mentioned, mantu is one of them, right? It isn't really that common, you know, within the Afghan community to turn into a vegetarian. So it kind of surprised people when I actually announced it. Nevertheless, I, I have to say I've been quite happy with my decision. It was great. Uh, you know, I'm, I, maybe in the beginning, to be honest, I, I kind of missed it, especially when I was with friends, with family. You know, it was difficult uh, since, you know, there was like a transitioning into people actually accepting this, this fact and phenomenon that I wasn't, I was no longer, you know, eating meat, which came as a surprise. Uh, and it was all of a sudden, you know, it wasn't me just reducing my meat consumption, you know, it was all of a sudden. So that was quite, uh, quite unique in, in its own way. Well, Oliver, I'm now increasingly mindful of your time. It has really been great talking to you and uh, learning from you. I do hope to be able to talk to you soon, perhaps for another podcast. Uh, wish you well and be safe, my friend. Thank you.